Thank you for tuning in to Adversity University, and welcome to class. Hey everyone, this is Sean. Garrett and I just finished up a fantastic interview. We love interviewing these Special Forces guys, and previously we've had on uh, Stu Smith, Navy SEAL, and J.B. Spizo, Army Ranger. If you want to check out those episodes, they've been fantastic, and you learn so much from these guys. They have so much life experience, and they're so humble. It was just really great to meet this guy, and um, I have to give a big shout out to Brad Hogan. He plays men's league with my dad and he helped set up this connection. So thank you to him. And um, I hope that everyone enjoys this episode. Garrett, what'd you think of Jeff? I don't know if it's just me, but all these special forces army guys are so nonchalant. You know, they're talking about, I won't give away anything, but Jeff is a medic. Um, and he talks about a, a crazy situation that he's in and he's telling it like, you know, he's telling his three-year-old kid a good night story before bed and uh, <laughs> I don't think he realizes the extent of what he's talking about they just tell it like it's another story in their life and it's very unbelievable and as you said um, just really humble down-to-earth guys but I think that there's a, a trait with all of them that we've interviewed I think that there's something in the way that they're wired or the experiences that they've gone through or the way that they've been brought up um, kind of similar to when we talk about the strength and conditioning coaches they're kind of the the brutes or the grunts as um, was once mentioned on our podcast, but they're all the same uh, and, and they love it and they thrive in it. They love these adverse situations where the pressure is very high, the stress is very high and the stakes are even higher. Um, and if they could be in that situation all day, every day, I honestly think they would. I really like this one because with our other two military guys, we talked a lot about, you know, going through buds and basic training and the adversity that, you know, everyone knows exists, but we got into a couple of specific stories of his deployments. And I really love the details of, you know, those specific times rather than just, you know, generally this is what happened and, you know, this is how I felt. So it was really cool that he was so honest with us and willing to share, you know, you know, intimate details of his life and those deployments. One thing that we briefly touched on too that I think it would have been more interesting to get into and maybe <clears throat> too personal of a topic, but how as a family collectively do you deal with that? I think it'd be really hard whether you are a male or female uh, leaving your family behind, being gone from your significant other, your spouse for extended periods of times, your kids. And, you know, I have 13 plus nieces and nephews and I see them very rarely and I come back and it seems like they're growing up so fast. I feel like that that would be very hard to deal with as a parent to see your kids come back. Um, but hopefully maybe something that we can touch on uh, with something that, or someone that's willing to open up about it a little bit more. Yeah. It's just another one of those sacrifices that they make and our, our military personnel make so many sacrifices. And, you know, he also talked about the difficulty of returning back to civilian life after you're deployed. And that's something else that, you know, maybe, Maybe the next time we get a guest like this on, we can dive more into that because it's it's crazy that you go through such a traumatic time and you see such a dark, twisted side of the world that you have to just come back to, you know, everyday life where, you know, Timmy just plays Xbox all day and it's just such a different world. So, um, like I said, really interesting interview. Can't thank Jeff enough for coming on. Hope you guys enjoy it. Let's kick it on over to Jeff Schmidt. Monument Hockey Academy provides the highest level of developmental training available today. With intense focus on individual skills including skating, stick handling, shooting, game awareness, and competition, MHA offers players the opportunity to take advantage of up to 15 hours of on and off ice time per week to continue their personal development outside of team-specific training. Our coaches bring Tier 1, college, and pro experience and are trained in the latest and most cutting-edge programming in the world. Our academic support staff provides guidance and coaching with a variety of educational platforms, including including online, in-person, and hybrid models, while ensuring students' NCAA eligibility from middle school through graduation. At MHA, our goal is to provide an opportunity for every player to reach his or her maximum potential, both on and off the ice. For more information or to schedule a visit, go to monumenthockey.com. 
Today's guest is from Norton, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. He played college hockey as a goaltender for Sacred Heart University. Since then, he has risen in a military career to the rank of major and is currently the command surgeon for SOC North. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff Schmidt. Yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Jeff, they always say goalies are weird. I'm a goalie as well. So hopefully for our listeners, this podcast doesn't get too weird. Um, but what was your what was your childhood like growing up in uh, Norton? Yeah, man. So um, what we call it, uh, perhaps you've heard this term, but a latchkey kid. Um, so my parents are hard workers. Um, my sister is five years older than me. Um, yeah, so growing up, I, I was that, that weird, probably wiry athletic kid. Uh, that my sister had to take care of me maybe made me a little bit weirder too um but growing up like, again my parents great people hard workers but yeah i mean uh yeah that was having an older sister was a huge part of my life you guys still really close to this day yeah not so much now though they actually moved to town but no not not so much um i, I wouldn't necessarily say we were close back then to the two but she's uh cer certainly uh you know parent figure uh, growing up. I've never heard of, Bar or, uh, of Norton. Um, I went to school at UMass all my freshman year in Massachusetts. So where is that in relation to Boston? Um, and is it like a smaller town? What, what did you do growing up there? Yeah, so we moved to Norton actually when I was in college. I'm actually from Mansfield. Um, so that's the next town over from Foxborough, which is where the Patriots play. Have you ever heard of the Tweeter Center? That's um, that's Mansfield. It's on the Mansfield Norton line. That's the, it's the, it's kind of like Red Rocks in Colorado. Um, you know, a big concert venue. So south, south of Boston, to answer your question, between Boston and Providence. Okay. I don't want to dig too far, uh, but is there a large age gap, age gap between you and your sister? Do you think that's why she's more of a parental figure? <laughs> yeah, five years. So, you know, again, both parents uh, working their butts off. Um, Five years old than me, yeah, she just turned into to the, to the babysitter with it too, and then having a, you know, hyper wiry, you know, kid in the house. Uh, and again, you know, goalie, I'm in everything with the two play little football in high school too. Um, yeah, she was in charge of taking care of me. <laughs> yeah. So I know today a lot of people are pretty jealous of the sports world in Massachusetts. It seems like every year, you know, the Patriots, the Bruins, the Red Sox, the Celtics, one of them's winning a championship. So did they have a big impact on you playing sports? And do you think the Bruins were part of why you decided to play hockey? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I'll start with my oldest name is uh, Brady. If that gives you any indication of how much I, I like uh, Boston sports. A little um, too much. I don't know if you guys remember Cam Neely. I wanted the youngest to be Cam, but my wife put, put an end to that. Uh, so we went with Parker with him. Uh, so Cam Neely and, uh, and Ray Bork are my favorite players. And of course, I went with the, the football theme with my oldest son yeah huge uh, huge influence um yeah just talking about the bruins with a with the beer league uh dudes last night too that's Andy funny Bo that was my favorite goalie back then wanted to be like him that's funny that you bring up naming a child after an athlete because one of the guys i play hockey with his favorite players are kovalchuk and ovechkin and yeah. somehow his wife let him name their son kovi yeah. so we're all like in the year of covid I yeah. know that it means something else, but I don't oh, think yeah. you can name your child Kobe. So we're all joking. Yeah. He's going to be number 19 growing up and he's going to catch It'll be a conversation play. starter for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Is it just in the, the blood of everyone in Boston? Because I feel like when someone says they're from Massachusetts, they're always all diehard sports fans. They bleed the colors and you go to different states and it, it's not the same. And it's only in Boston, I swear. So it's got to be something in the blood or the water, something you guys are drinking over there. Yeah, something in the water for sure with it. Um, so I've lost my accent. I went to school again in Connecticut in the military. They beat you up pretty bad for having that Boston accent. Yeah, it comes out once in a while. I'd say probably more than I'm drinking. But um, yeah, that, that, that Boston pride for sure. Um, yeah, nothing like it. I'm, I'm biased with it, of course. Too. Yeah, it was cool. I've seen it a bit in Pittsburgh too. And I think part of it is because all the teams are the same colors. So the Pirates... Yeah. The Steelers and the Penguins are all, you know, black and gold. Black and yellow, as Wiz Khalifa said. But uh, I think that that helps build, like, the camaraderie. I think more states should try doing that. Yeah. So diving into your hockey career a little bit, um, obviously you played a little while ago, but did you play junior hockey, or what was your process like to get to Sacred Heart? Yeah, Gareth, uh, great question with it, too. So I have a point of contention as well. Um, 
so my dad uh, taught at Boston University, great hockey school. So I wasn't going to play there. And I was thinking about UMass at the time. Um, and I was really torn. I wanted to play juniors. Um, you know the deal. I don't know if you did as well uh, with, before, before you went in. Um, I mean, you do your best with college development league. We call it out there. I don't know if you even have something like that here. So I, high school wasn't very competitive. We had Tri-County Saints who I played for. Um, and then you do the college development league. Wanted to do juniors at least for a couple of years because I was, uh, I'm still a small wiry guy now. And that was, that helped me out back then as well. But, but I mean, I was, I was still just really small. I needed to put on more mass. Um, threw around a couple schools, a couple D3, D2 schools. I really just wanted to play um, in Sacred Heart. I love the coach. There's a ton of goalies that tried out that freshman year. Don't get me wrong. You Google me long enough, you'll probably find me, but I was a backup uh, all four years. But they had a great program, and what talked me into it was uh, I loved the school. Uh, I loved the opportunity to at least compete for a position. And they did have, and this is odd, a JV team. So the JV team played uh, Division three, and then they played junior teams, like ex uh, exhibition type stuff. Uh, so I went right from high school into college. Uh, did make the team as a backup, and it was the, the whole way through. But I was able to start this JV team that, that I, I backed up, uh, of, of course, uh, uh, Sacred Heart, you know, the, the main venue. Um, so I got a ton of ice time. It was a blast. Uh, so, I, yeah, I wouldn't, uh, I wish I still could have played juniors because I think when I graduated, I was like, you know, the third youngest guy in the team still when I graduated, which is odd, you know. Yeah, it definitely helps having those years to mature. And when I was looking you up, it looks like you were part of the Sacred Heart team during their transition from Division Three to Division One. Yeah, true? right when they uh, right when they transitioned into the MAC, and, and so their recruiting was really good then because of that, and that's why I got so yeah great. That's why I looked into their school when I first found out about Sacred Heart that they were Division Three. I'm like, well, hell, this looks like a good, um, you know, D three team that's that's pretty close to home that has yeah, medicine is something I think I wanted to do then too, um, and I don't recall the coach's name now with it as well. But yeah, it was right when they joined the MAC was my freshman year. Okay, so what was that transition like going from D3 to D1? And you weren't there for the first year of D3, it sounds like, but... Um, no, the first year of the like D1, a big jump. Yeah. yeah, we did pretty well. If you look that first year, we did pretty well. Uh, Lexi was the goalie's name that I backed up with it as well. Um, yeah, did real well. Uh, a uh, couple guys I had played in around the area in Rhode Island and, and stuff uh, uh, ended up playing for Sacred Heart as well. So two other dudes that I had grown up playing with uh, went to Sacred Heart. Um, I don't know that helps that that team mentality. I think we all kind of knew each other. Really young, driven, driven folks wanted to wanted to make a name for themselves and get an opportunity to play D one was pretty cool. So um, I think that first year went really well, uh, and then there were some tough years afterwards. But now they're doing real well. <laughs> yeah, they were really good last year. Garrett and I both played against them. Yeah, that was good. Like, we got to take the kids. Uh, my wife swam at Sacred Heart. So we, we put on our Sacred Heart gear and the kids too and we, we saw them play against the Air Force Academy last year. Uh, we were the only ones wearing Sacred Heart stuff. Shocker. What did you, what'd you get your degree on at Sacred Heart? So it's uh, um, athletic training was the degree. It was called Human Movement and Sports Science is the name. And then uh, I started off at, with biology as my major, but that didn't seem to fit very well. And I, my roommates, uh, they're all DPT, so Doctor of Physical Therapy now. Um, yeah, they kind of talked me into doing this human movement and sports science deal. Like, hey, it'll be a good base to, to work on whatever you want to do in medicine. At that point, I knew it was medicine, but I didn't know what the heck it was I was going to do. And never, I didn't, back then, I, I certainly didn't know what the heck a physician assistant was either. Um, so I got the degree, I, I got that, uh, or that emphasis from, from bio, knew bio wasn't going to be my gig. And then I could keep the, the prereqs up with the, the pre-med emphasis. More thinking that med school, at least if I focus on that, uh, perhaps I could change my mind go physical therapy or what happened. Well, speaking of med school, you took the MCAT um, to get into medical school. So what happened to change that path in your life? Yeah, so 9-11 occurred. So I had just taken the MCATs. I had just got my scores back. Um, I, I didn't do outstanding, but I didn't do terrible. Um, yeah, it was probably a couple weeks. That would be able to, uh, I'd have to go look at it now to see when the date was. Um, but that was a, a big transition. Yeah, I just graduated college when 9-11 occurred with it as well. Um, and that's obviously, you know, a very powerful time in our history. And um, I think it goes without saying that that's what motivated you to join the Special Forces. And 
you had a bit of a unique situation where you were able to join right away. Can you talk about that path? Yeah. So, um, the opportunity, I want to highlight this though. You made me think of it. So excuse me. The, uh, a lot of what I had, you know, a lot of family members that are in the military, um, dad to coast guard, my grandfather still alive now is a world war II pilot. Uncle was an army pilot and just got out recently. Uh, it's a lot of, a lot of military folks, uh, in my family, but my, my coach, my high school coach, um, was a Vietnam vet and, and uh, in the Marine. I think growing up with that kind of dude in your life with the two, uh, the kind of stuff that he probably did, nothing nothing bad or creepy or anything, uh, but just the stuff you do to kids just to motivate and make sure you keep them on track. I was certainly the kid that needed to be kept on track too. Um, that had always resonated with me, um, wanting that higher purpose, I guess, and kind of instilled that to you, young hockey dudes. Um, and then to answer your question, uh, the, the program I joined, I, I had uh, gone to the recruiter knowing I just wanted to, and excuse me here, I want to kill the bad guys and save the good guys. I had the medical background. I figured, hell, that's what I want to do. I'm, a, I'm an athletic dude. I know I could probably do something you know, tougher than your average bear. Um, and figured, of course, uh, you know, cocky Massachusetts dude, why not go Navy SEAL? I figured that's like the hardest thing I knew of at the time to know what the heck it was. Uh, but I like water. figured that'd be cool. Um, went to the recruiter and then the army guy pulled me over and told me about, it's called an 18 Delta. It's a special forces, uh, uh, medic. Um, and told about my background, obviously, which is why he recommended that. And I'm like, well, that's perfect. I can patch up the, the good guys and, and take care of the, of the bad guys there too. Um, and the program he called was, uh, uh the eight, 18 x-ray program. So it just, it, it provides you a seat to test to be a special forces guy. Um, so you go through infantry training, you become what's called 11 Bravo. This is enlisted route. So infantry, um, and then it gets you a seat for special forces assessment and selection, which is SFAS. It doesn't guarantee you'll get in. It just guarantees that you have, a um, the ability to try out for it. So I took it. Was that infantry training like boot camp? And if so, how did you survive that? Yeah, so that was, uh, yeah, that was different. I mean, I, I think being an athletic folks like yourselves uh, in Driven, um, that, that wasn't difficult. Um, I mean, maybe being cold and living outside was, but as far as uh, the mental game, um, not any different than, than playing a competitive sport. I don't think that was any different at all. Um, and then the physical aspect, I don't think that was very difficult for the infantry stuff. It definitely got harder afterwards, but being an infantryman just, yeah, I uh, taught you to be a, what, what being a soldier is like really is what that did, um, a good basis for it. But I, I graduated that program, went right into airborne school, and then went right into testing to be an SF guy. So I never really got to, to be one. But And talk about how, you know, being in the military runs your family. You mentioned your gym teacher. But what are characteristics you think of people that, uh, you know, want to join the special forces or military, army, whatever it may be, um, and what, what of those characteristics do you think you have? Yeah, characteristics, I'll have where to start. So um, I think you have to be one of those, and forgive me for this one, but one of those born leaders with it too. You have to, um, you have, to have the ability to yeah, uh, you know, see a deficiency, act on it, um, self-starter, self-thinker kind of a thing. Um, again, a lot of that for me and for a lot of the people that I work with that it stems from athletics teaches you that, especially if you have good coaches around you. Um, it's a it's a mental game. A lot of people I've seen have done well here or, or throughout my 19 years now. Um, I've seen folks that are more athletic than I, um, but the head game that 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 can be a challenge for folks, especially when you start throwing in families. Um, yeah, along those 19 years, I'm married with two kids. Um, mental game, you have to get that dialed in right out of the gate. Do you think there's something someone can do? You know, you said athletics helps train that and build that, but what do you think someone can do to improve their mental toughness and be prepared for a situation like that? Oh, how do you prepare for that? That's a, that's a great question. I think if I had the answer to that, I mean, I'd have to be rich. Uh, yeah. I don't know. You have to have that within you. It takes a lot. I mean, a lot of uh, what you folks are pushing out here as well. It's a, uh, um, a lot of what you have within you and then the, the type of circumstances in your life that shape you and, and how you persevere throughout that. Um, and, and the reason I'm saying that because 
I've seen a lot of folks make it through special forces and don't do well and get out and do something else, which is fine. It's not for everybody. The military is not for everybody. And that's fine. Um, it just, it was uh, right for me. Um, certainly not right for everybody. And there's certainly better people than me too. I just handle that mental game being a weird goalie, I suppose, of the two. So maybe Garrett would be all right. At it. <laughs> <laughs> do you, so, so you're saying you think that that was the experiences that you went through and the situations that you were put in that helped you learn to deal with, you know, the mental toughness side of being in the, the Marines and maybe even a little bit uh, of your surroundings. And what I mean by that is your family, they've gone through it, they've been through it. Yeah. So they could potentially give you some advice that uh, the ordinary Joe wouldn't have. Yeah. I mean, I consider myself like a Garrett. So I had uh, again this, this coach that was a Vietnam Marine. I had uh, his two sons. I still talk to now. Uh, one of the defensemen, uh, one of the really good forward, uh, best friend, uh, defenseman, you know, played all little kid growing up through high school with it too. Um, to keep you on track, there's several times I could have strayed and, and, and probably wanted to eat alcohol early on, that kind of thing. Uh, that, you know, but, Looking back, I just I think a lot of it was luck that that uh, yeah I didn't do something stupid to you know kill myself just being a reckless abandon um, and having that good support structure with it as well and then people like that coach to always keep me on track and that adult influence as well and like you said having having you know see my parents and my grandparents and having those people around you um, you're really hard workers you know, no quit mentality. You mentioned that support structure, and that's something that we really like to emphasize here. Um, during those hard times, did you make calls back home and, you know, reach out, ask for advice? Or was it just the fact that you knew your family had your back no matter what that would kind of help get you through the tough times? Yeah, I'd say I, I knew they had my back. Um, how I'm built, though, I, I internalize a lot of things, um, and that's my competitive nature. You know, you know, in sports, you have guys that, that – uh, I've done a little coaching with it too. And maybe you guys are one of them too. You know, that you always have the guy on the team that, that gets in fights and breaks a stick or what have you. Um, I always try to show the opposite side. So in special forces, the quiet professional, you know, and that's been my mantra well before I was an SF guy. Um, I tell these young kids even now, like don't, don't give that to the other team. Don't let someone know that gets under your skin. Or if I, if I let in seven goals in the first seven shots, I'm not going to let you know it upsets me. You might see it afterwards because I can't hide that because it'll, it will piss me off. But, uh, you know, don't show that. Um, so going back to the very beginning, there are a few different career paths from the special forces and you wanted to go into the special forces medic, but you didn't start in that role. Uh, where did you start and how did you make your way back around to becoming a special forces medic? Yeah. So, uh, when you go into this program, the 18 X-ray program, they're called SF babies and the seals do something similar. Now I didn't know that at the time. Um, the only MOS is the only job identifiers they give you back then, regardless of your education level. Um, and a lot of us that came in were folks that had just, you know, athletic folks that just, you know, graduated college. Um, a lot of them played, you know, college sports with it too. Um, they were only given 18 Bravo. So it's a special forces weapons specialist. And a lot of it, the reason is, is it's uh, one of the quickest um, to go through. Um, and I think a lot of the folks, they don't know who's going to wash out. They don't know how well you're going to do, how, the, how well the program. That program has come, uh, that's been around since Vietnam back and forth. But I think right after 9-11, they weren't real sure how well folks are going to do. Um, so push me through that program. I think what you're asking me was, uh, how did I then circle back? Well, I had always known I was going to go back to do medicine. It's something I liked, uh, but I was going to give it a shot. And I figured that's what life was throwing at me. So let's make it happen. Um, doing a fast rewind, looking at my mindset back then, I really just wanted to get in the fight and do something for my country with it too. I didn't care, honestly, at that point, how it was going to happen. When I was done with that program, I was offered to, to go through the 18 Delta school, which would have been another two years. And then I would have missed out. And then the pipeline just to get through special forces training is about two and a half years just to train, you know, so you're, you're, you're nothing but a practice hero for, for years. Uh, that's not something I wanted to do. Uh, so I did that. I made it to the teams. Um, I was able to deploy. I deployed right away right when I got here to Colorado, um, 2004, 2005. I went right to, right to Iraq after a quick train up. And that's what I wanted. So I did that. For a few years, did a bunch of other things, um, a bunch of cool school and training that you can do in the military, things I wanted to do, uh, uh, military skydiving, I'm a diver, I went to ranger school along the way. Um, usually most people do ranger before, I did mine after, just because 
Um, uh, did all that. And then when I got called up to, to go to SWIC, which is our, our training school at Fort Bragg, um, having a, a weapons specialist uh, that's ranger qualified, that's a really good person to train the younger folks. And that's not some, something I wanted to do for sure. Um, but I also knew that I, I needed to, to use those prerequisites. Hell, I'm still paying my undergrad now. I don't have very much left. Military paid for my graduate stuff, but I'm still ha I still have some undergraduate uh, bills to pay. That's pretty expensive. I, I wanted to use that money wisely. Um, and then was thinking about starting a family. Um, I had just proposed at the time too. So you know, uh, life changes when you do that. I had the prereqs. I was going to apply to med school or or uh, PA school. I couldn't decide. I was on a deployment. Never make a decision when you're you know on a deployment or in a stressful situation. I think I changed my mind every night. Um, and then I, I settled on PA. I, I I had worked with our physician assistant at in special forces before, and he was a great guy, very skilled, um, and had a lot of conversations with him where I could go through that school fairly quickly, as in a couple of years, as opposed to uh, you know, med school and then residency, um, and then an, another train up that I could get back in the fight, and then I could help uh, save the good guys. Um, in a deployed setting, that type of stress, and not that I'm a warmonger, um, I do well in that. Um, in that capacity, uh, not that I don't do well here with it too, but that type of stress is like a game time. It's a different type of focus level and probably a little bit of adrenaline involved that, that, that I, uh, like a better word, enjoy, um, that I, I knew I wanted to, to save the good guy. So um, applied, it was an easy application because I had the prereqs and I had the MCATs. And then I got accepted. So I came back from my deployment and I went right into uh, PA school, and that's through University of Nebraska, but through the military, they send you down to Fort Sam. So I went to Fort Sam Houston in, in uh, San Antonio, um, Texas, but I have my degree from University of Nebraska. So you mentioned how stressful those situations are on those deployments, and those last for a long time, you know, around nine months is what I've heard. Is that correct? Because it depends. They can. I mean, I've done some short ones too. Um, uh, it, it depends. Every units do them differently in special forces, or you said you'd. Uh, you had some ranger guys you talked to as well. Um, some of them could be pretty short. I did a, a three-month long one with it too. Um, doesn't mean it's any easier. It's pretty intense with it as well. Uh, and I also, um, to, to backfill an infantry unit, I did a year-long deployment with 10th Mountain Division and Fort Drum. So uh, they can be very long too. How do you stay mentally locked in in, in such a stressful situation? It's a real marathon because you know it's months at a time and you never really know what's going to happen you know, every day, every night is completely different. And it's obviously a very dangerous situation. How did you, you know, mentally stay confident, um, relaxed enough to survive, but also, you know, dialed in enough to get the job done? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you what answer is, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if anyone really knows that too. Uh, that's something that again, marathon, I like how you put that. It, it's very challenging and sometimes it doesn't hit you, at least for me. Um, it, all those deployments didn't hit me until afterwards. And you can definitely interview my wife to figure that, that piece out. Um, that's the piece. And that's what I think folks that are struggling with PTS or um, post-traumatic stress, that kind of thing is being able to go from that, that high intensity adrenaline rich environment and then being able to come back to real life again that is the biggest challenge yeah i think they're doing well to kind of socialize that a little bit better now um but i mean it, there it's a job and, and lives are at stake whether it was me like you know on the teams doing uh, you know weapon stuff or being part of a team and it, that's great because all i've ever known is being on a team i'm going to look to the guy on my left and the guy to my right um that was also a different type of stress as being a medical guy and then dealing with trauma um, that happens every day or heck I've been woken up in the middle of the night to treat something that, that you don't know is even coming with it too. Um, so you're on guard the whole time and it's a marathon. You just have to, you take one day at a time and then you rely on, on uh, the folks to your left and your right and that, that support structure, whether it's back home or, or it's there with you, I'll say it's both, but you certainly have to rely on the folks that are right there you know, with you. I'm gathering that you thrive in these stressful environments. That's why you continue to do it. Um, as a goalie, as you know, you're kind of, I would say, comparable to a quarterback on a team. You can win or lose a game. Uh, there's a lot of stress that goes into it, and learning how to manage your stress is very important. Uh, then you go to the military side. Do you think that's what 
you know, led in your direction of being a PA in the military is that high stress situation, uh, saving people's lives and, and really life or death. Yeah, Garrett, I absolutely think so. Um, I mean, I can still play beer league hockey now for me, uh, that background and being a, a goaltender, um, uh, that absolutely shaped me to, um, to, to who I am here today and being able to handle that type of stress. And early on, you have to kind of, you know, keep your, uh, keep your shit together. Um, if you're getting lit up and, and live on to, to play the next game and, and hopefully not be a complete mess and, and, you very well could be a mess the next game with it too. You got to fight through it. Um, fighting through that adversity, hell, that taught me a ton of lessons. It still does now. You need to ask, uh, you know, some of the beer league buddies I play with because I, I lost that athleticism just with injuries now that I know the position, I know how to play, but I can't, you know, I can't do a split to save my life anymore for them. If I do, you know, I'm not going to get up again. Um, yeah, it answered your question with it. Uh, for me, not certainly not with everybody that, that, um, that absolutely shaped me to for special forces and to be able to do well in that in that type of environment. So what drew you to give back to people and what made you want to help others in the first place and become a medic? I know that your background was um, in medicine, but what do you think made you want to be someone who did that? Yeah, uh, again, sorry this one. I don't really know. Um, I have a couple of instances when I was young. I, I like science better than some other stuff. That's kind of a cop out answer though with it too. Um, there's a couple of times it just, uh, you know, uh, a kid in my class that I reflect on that was kind of getting bullied. Um, and I just knew I didn't want to be the, the kid that was initially, I was the kid that was bullying them. And for whatever reason there was that, that light that went off and I didn't want to be that person. And then, it, you know, you had that one time where you kind of helped someone and you're like, I actually felt kind of good. And, you know, helping someone else with it too. And then it just escalated from there. And then I was like, well, maybe I'll do well in medicine someday with it too. And I kind of like sciences and I sort of threw that around and I had some folks have me, uh, uh, just volunteer, um, any, any medically related, uh, venue. And I did, whether it was, you know, some type of physical therapy or gym or coaching and, and yeah, it took off from there. And this is high school I'm talking. And then, uh, went into college knowing that, something something medical but didn't know what it what exactly it was i hate to relive the past but a question that i'm curious and knowing is when during all of your time in serving what do you think was the highest pressure situation can you take us through a little bit of that so in all so in my years of service, what was the highest pressure situation and why okay so there's quite a few I'd say uh, the one that's probably freshest in my mind um, happened not too long ago. Unfortunately, I had you know some experience and background to help me with it. Um, but that was uh, I was with the this unit on the DMZ. Um, you live on, on on the DMZ in Panmunjom, is what it's called. So it's the blue buildings um, in in, uh, in South Korea, but it's on on the line between uh, North and South Korea. And um, you know, I was fortunate to. Had the ability to to when I first showed up within the first month to to as a prior SF guy to look at this from the battalion commander and offer him guidance on how we could make it better. And I looked at as they needed a lot of uh, medical attention and some some medical kits, all stuff that's in my wheelhouse um, because you got to prepare for the worst. And I have plenty of horrible situations that led to this, but this is the one that that's um, pops in my mind first when people ask me that. Um, and yeah, I had just, it was probably like four days before this happened. I had just outfitted um, a bunch of different areas uh, with these casualty collection points where I just put medical gear and, and gauze and things like that to prepare for the worst. And, and um, you know, there hasn't been something bad that's happened on the DMZ in, year, in years. And that was when that, that uh, Sergeant O was his name, a North Korean soldier that, that came uh, north of South and he was uh, shot up pretty bad. Um, and then I was the, the medical officer on call with it too. So I ended up uh, doing some care to him and, and uh, we call it stopping the red stuff. So stopping the bleeding, that's all you do initially in those instances and try to get some fluids on board and do rapid assessments to, to try to save their life. And then uh, able to call a, an aircraft in. And this is a lot of this having folks that don't speak your language with it too. I have a 
you know, we had United States folks there helping to drive it to certainly a challenge doing all this care when I, I wasn't there very long. Um, and lo and behold, you know, between uh, my medics and myself and pushing them on the aircraft crew and then I'm a really skilled trauma surgeon is what saved this guy's life that, um, that that gentleman that started to know ended up living through. So that was a pretty big deal, at least it was in, uh, in South Korea a couple of years ago. Was he brought back from, you know, I'm not sure, what's it called, like the live firing site, like an active, an active firing site? Was he brought back to you or were you like in the line of fire tending to him? Yeah, so you're not in the line of fire, but we're right behind where that happened. So this happened on, on the DMZ where he was, he parked his Jeep and ran across and, and was shot in the back um, as he was defecting. Um, so the North Korean soldiers went, or sorry, South Korean soldiers went uh, to go retrieve him. Um, it took a, quite a while for them to low crawl to, to bring him back. And then they were able to, to drive him. I, I wasn't very far behind to, to do uh, uh, medical care for him. And again, luckily I had a, a lot of medical supplies and he needed it um, that day. He used a lot of tourniquets, a lot of gauze on him. You briefly mentioned earlier, but when you're in that high pressure situation, you don't really understand the magnitude of it, correct? You're kind of more, I need to do this to make sure this guy stops bleeding so he doesn't potentially die. And then after maybe you're done with it and your nerves have calmed down, you kind of realize the magnitude of the situation that you were just in. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's uh, training is where that is. And, and uh, that's where special forces are successful. That's where uh, units or teams where they, they practice, you know, they have that great coaching staff, where they practice the most. And that's where that kicks in because in, in those times under that degree of stress, um, you're relying on your training with it too. So then it's, it's um, for me, things slow down to some degree and you just have to accomplish that task. But yeah, it doesn't hit you till afterwards. Fortunately, because heck, if you had to think about what's going on, yeah, it'd probably be pretty overwhelming. But none of that stuff, I'm never really thinking about the time I'm just thinking of. Um, I'm going through my, my training algorithms and my assessment on what do I need to do and, and what's the, uh, you know, what else could be wrong, you know, with that casualty or that patient. When you talk about training, are you talking about they put you in a lot of high pressure situations or they put you in every scenario possible so that when it does happen, you guys know exactly what to do um, and you've practiced it before? Yeah, I'd say both. I mean, you can never hit everything, but they put you in some, you know, if you, if you have a good training pipeline, which fortunately I did, and just my, my background before even being a, a medical guy. Um, but yeah, just had that exposure to a lot of, a lot of different stuff. And I've had, I have six deployments now. So I had been on, um, I'm not counting that as one that was just a couple of years ago. So I, I had six deploy combat deployments under my belt to, to help me with that too. So at this point, at even most couple of years ago, I, I have, a lot of that training under my belt with it too so i think it's a little easier just in the sense that i have a, a lot in my toolbox that i can fall back on you talk about how prepared you are and on the flip side of that have you ever seen someone who just freezes up in those high pressure situations and if you have yeah. how do you kind of step up as a leader to basically save their life as well as the other lives that need their support for the mission to be successful yeah, I had a young kid do it. It was um, it was his first deployment. I, mean, I usually tell when I tell this story, it was you know his first you know couple of days in Afghanistan, but it wasn't. It was maybe his first week. Um, but yeah, there was a, um, a mass casualty, so a lot of a lot of it was an ambush where a lot of folks were injured. A lot of U.S. soldiers were injured, and I was called into it. Um, and I, of course, how this stuff works is. Uh, whenever you're called into something where they say that the, the sky is falling, it's not as bad as you're expecting. And it's when you're, you're called for some type of splinter and you're seeing gunshot wounds. It was one of those kind of things that I didn't know what I was getting into. Um, and yeah, the medic was overwhelmed and he didn't have the training to, to fall on. This isn't a special force medic, this is an infantry medic. So he's 19 years old. This is his first week in combat in Afghanistan and Illinois. Um, uh, this is a dig on me as well. He um, was treated uh, a patient, and then I start doing my assessment. I get focused on, on this guy. He needed a tourniquet, so I focused on him and then knew I needed to call an aircraft. This kid got in with me to the vehicle. We were going to take him to go, um, you know, fly him out somewhere where he can get that definitive care. Um, it, I don't, you know, it seemed like probably an hour. It was like probably five minutes, but as I'm doing the care, you know, you have to strip, strip, you know, some, you have to strip your clothes off so you can expose everything to see what's bleeding and what can you, uh, what you can fix. 
Um, he was the only medic in this. Is a company size element. So um, at this time, you know, company size element. There's probably you know 50, 50 um, U.S. soldiers with him. He was the only medic. He got in the vehicle with me down to this other area to take you know this patient to fly him out. I looked over as I'm getting him ready and I'm packaging him up and I'm, I'm getting ready so I can I can hoist him up. And then at that time where I'm I'm strapping all these straps on, I didn't even know he was sitting next to me. So. Then it hit me that I'm, I'm in a lot of trouble because now he's sitting there and he's holding a syringe in his hand too, not knowing what to do. So that's that's that, you know, that blue screen, uh, the lights are on, but really no one's home kind of thing. Um, I should have recognized that he was there. I didn't. And then he just left the rest of the U.S. guys without medical care. Um, as you imagine, I was pretty upset. So we got that that patient out and we had to evac a couple more. Um, but yeah, you know, my initial reaction because I was angry because I chewed him out. Um, and yeah, I, I, I dug in him pretty hard and realized I, I had to bring him up um, and then work with him. Well, I hadn't had a chance to work with him at all, work with that deployment. And then last I heard, he ended up going uh, to become a special forces medic too. Not saying that I'm the one that, that uh, pushed him that way, more just saying that a case of someone that's able to push through the crap that he was dealt. And that was a horrible situation. He had no business dealing with um, and did not handle the, the first uh, the first trauma well. The man that the kid learned from it, though, it'd be hard to deal with. Like you said, he's 19 years old. Obviously, gets in a terrible situation. Um, but as we mentioned, like being able to bounce back from that, because especially in the role that you guys are in, you have to build a lot of trust, and your trust comes from doing well at, at a certain mission. And then when you go to the next one, doing well. This is this kid's first ever time. Yeah. Doesn't get the trust. Doesn't do the job very, very well. I, I don't know how you would bounce back from that. Um, and not only that, I feel like the people that you're working with wouldn't, if they knew what had just happened, they wouldn't be able to trust you as much, yeah. you know, they'd be looking over your shoulder. And I think that would just add more pressure to the situation. Yeah. It shows kind of stuff that we, we had to throw some of our, our soldiers into. Um, again, I'm going to go back to how I started this and I just consider myself lucky. I picked the right job at the right time, right support structure, um, Again, sounds like he turned around. I've since lost touch with him, but I don't know how, how I would bounce back. As, uh, there, there are some patients that I've uh, saved and some ones I've lost. And I think the ones that you lose, of course, are the ones that they each uh, eat away at you. And man, I, I don't know. Just like I remember the, the weeks afterwards, and we did a lot of medical training, and he, he, he just took it the right way. He's like, I really messed up, and I'm going to pick your brain and, and get better at this. And I'm going to, yeah, he sure did. So and you end up seeing a lot more trauma afterwards and, and, you know, handled that calm, cool and collected and took care of his boys with the two. And, but he had nothing, I mean, his just a quick basic training they go through. Um, that's just what it is. You learn um, on the job training. It's been like that way in the military for years, not in the special forces pipeline, but for, for the regular army. Um, yeah. He just didn't have a lot of training. He didn't have that training to fall back on. Um, that a lot of folks in my community do. You mentioned that he was the only medic in a group of, you know, 50 American soldiers and he got in the car and left with you. Has there been a situation where you've been, you know, undermanned and had to deal with multiple, you know, life-threatening instances all at once by yourself? Like, yeah, certainly multiple uh, ones of those. And it's just uh, the nature of, uh, you know, what we've done for, for, um, you know, decades now. Um, yeah, too many stories to speak with there. Certainly even in that deployment, um, even with having those medics around, I had some where I, a lot of trauma that I, I'm not a skilled surgeon, even with this, this gentleman in, in, uh, South Korea, I'm not, I'm not a trauma surgeon. I'll pretend to be one with it either. Uh, all I did was stop the red stuff and, and then get some fluids on board and, and do some other things to, uh, give him a chance. It's the, the surgeons that are saving his life and that, and that's what you do, but there's been some time times where I've had to, we call it sitting on a patient where, you know, you get the ventilator out, I'm doing almost critical care stuff. And I got thrown in my first deployment as a PA doing more of that critical care type stuff. Where we located was, um, there used to be a surgical team, we call it a forward surgical team, FSD. Uh, they had moved out right when I moved in. So a lot of people still thought there was one there. Heck, I think the first uh, couple months I had two medics that I, I still talk to now in myself that we were just you know, grossly overwhelmed with that because you'd have people come in with stuff that, um, you know, I can do that acute care to give someone the best chance, but the, uh, the folks that were seeing me needed a surgeon, you know, um, and I'm doing my best uh, with li- little to no, to no critical care training to, to save these folks' lives. 
Uh, that was stressful. Um, and that those ones where I, there's some times where I did give them a chance and, and folks uh, made it. And then there's ones where yeah, I still did my best, but, you know, but folks didn't make it, you know, that sucks. Yeah. I mean, that's obviously tough, but how, how do you deal with that? Just look at it as, you know, I gave it my all and did everything I could to save this person's life. I mean, obviously if you sit there and dwell on it, like anything, it's going to eat away at you. Um, so just knowing that you gave, gave an honest effort and did everything you can. Yeah. I mean, I had some lessons that I had learned again, use this 19 year old as an example. Um, yeah, I, I got in the books and I, I tried to get better. So the next patient that came, I did that the whole deployment um, I got better, uh, or I'd pick other people that were smarter than me and watch that are, uh, I got more equipment. I kept getting more stuff, um, you know, more help. Um, so I could, so I could deal with those, those situations that were coming my way. Um, but I again had that tool in my toolbox knowing that, that, yeah, I got to push through this. Uh, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be here a year. Uh, yeah, let's, let's drive on. Uh, yeah, I use that kid as example because I, I don't know where he learned that. So I'm a little too just <laughs> to be able to dig down deep, push through. I like to say that experience is knowledge too. And although that the situation, you know, the outcome of the situation may not have been what you wanted it to. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of valuable information that you could take from that. And like you say, it applied to the future because you weren't going home anytime soon. And there's a lot of people that relied on you um, to hopefully keep their lives. Yeah. So obviously as a medical worker um, and not a lot of people have been dealing with the global pandemic, how has this affected your job at all if it has? Well, so I'm in a different capacity now. So um, staff officer is what I, I do here. So I do a lot of reporting. Um, I, none of the stress that I had dealt with my previous, you know, 17, 18 year, um, I'm 19 again now. Um, it's a different kind of stress. Now I think the stress I deal with is trying to, you know, balance uh, family life with, uh, you know, being completely devoted at work or put too much time in work. And I think everyone has that. Uh, I think everyone does. How do you get that, that, that life balance? I've been gone so many years from home um, and my wife, you know, holding the fort together. Uh, I think I probably struggle more now at being able to, to assist her in, in pull myself away from the job that they, I got to be able to put that away um, at the end of the day. You know, I probably struggle most with that now, which is a completely different type of stress that I'd spent my uh, career doing. You talk about how it's really tough to return back to civilian life after that. And are there any, any you know, tips or tricks that you've kind of used to help integrate yourself back? Into yeah, find an outlet with the two. So I mean, I still play hockey now. Um, in the, heck, I think a couple years ago, um, after back-to-back trips, uh, yeah, I was done playing hockey. I just with injury in my hips, I can't, I can't even do some of the moves you need to do. Um, but I want to. Um, and another outlet that I got into years ago, which is something I, I, I'm passionate about now, is mountain biking. We got a great area here to do that, uh, and that's where. And I've always been built this way. And I met my wife in college, so we we did this, went through this process together. It also helps, and just knowing that I'm a weird guy that just has to. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do these strange, uh, stressful um, things. Um, for me, I have to decompress, and I've just had the ability. And I, and I like we've come back to a couple times with uh, I've learned early on to to get the mental piece dialed in. Um, and how I do that is, uh, yeah, whether it's go for a run or whoever had whatever your sport is, whatever your hobby is. For me, it's been you know mountain biking or you know playing hockey or getting out something that I can do to just completely forget about everything else. And I still do that now with it too. It helps a lot. And then everything else just seems easier to, to compartmentalize. Yeah. It's really important to find something that you can just, you know, forget all the stress and, you know, I'm sure, like you said, you still play hockey and for Garrett and I, it's certainly a sheet of ice is where nothing else matters. So yeah, it's cool to see that you're still doing that all these years later. And yeah, if you could kind of reflect and go back 20, 30 years, what advice would you give to your younger self? No, it's a good one with it too. Uh, you know, a lot of it I learned along the way and I was humbled early on. I wish I could have told myself uh, and I learned for, you know, through some great leaders I've had over the years, um, be true to yourself. Um, 
do that early on. I think I was just really cocky as we are when we were younger. Um, exercise a little bit more humility instead of, you know, I, I, I expressed anger, I think, differently back then with the two. And yeah, it probably destroyed a few relationships early on with friends and things like that. Um, or just didn't learn lesson the first time around. And I should have as early on, even in the, the special forces pipeline with the two. Yeah. So true to myself and, and exercise humility early on. I think I, I learned that lesson, um, you know, emulating my, my uh, uh, leaders that have been around me. But yeah, it took a while, I think. That We've talked about a lot of the hard times from your time in the special forces. Uh, What's one of the things that comes up when I ask about, you know, one of the fond memories you have, obviously the relationships that you build there are so yeah. important too. Yeah. Just so it, team mentality, being on team is still, um, on, even a deployed setting is very much like being in any team sport with a two, um, just the, the type of friendship, uh, that you have during there. And then when you add that extra stress with the two that, I mean, there's nothing like that too. I, I've made, and, and you go your separate ways and, and you need each other at, at that particular high stress moment. And, and I still talk to all those guys in the two, man, you're close back then and, and, and you need it with the two. Um, that those are the fondest memory. And there's a lot of fun things you can do. I mean, you know, skydiving and, and diving and doing uh, military is a way of making all that stuff suck too, but you do some fun things together with it as well. And if you're one of those dudes that needs adrenaline, you know, like me to kind of, like you, like you need breath. Uh, hell, it's a great place to be. Well, Jeff, we can't thank you enough for coming on. It's been, you know, awesome to hear some of your story and thank you for, for being so honest and opening up with us. Yeah. I appreciate it, fellas. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode of Adversity University. You can follow more news about Adversity University on our social media pages. Our Instagram handle is adversity underscore university. Our Twitter handle is adversity underscore UNIV. And our Facebook page is Adversity University. If you know of any high-level athlete or professional that has an interesting story of overcoming adversity and you think they should share it, you can email us at adversityuniversitytalkshow at gmail.com. You can also use that email if you are interested in becoming a sponsor for Adversity University. We look forward to bringing our listeners more content from interesting guests weekly, so stay tuned on social media to see who could be next and what our past guests are up to now.